This is God's word. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall not you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin before him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Natalie. Good morning, church family. How are we? You guys good? Uh, If you are new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to have you with us today. And uh, if you're new, you should probably know that our real bread and butter as a church family is we like to go through books of the Bible, kind of line by line, word for word. We spent a couple years doing the Gospel of John recently. We've gone through books like Hebrews and the Old Testament book of Judges. Lord willing, this uh, August, we're going to kick off the book of Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel. So that will be where we'll spend the majority of our fall until Advent time. But every once in a while, we like to pause and do a a topical series where we can address some specific themes or specific ideas that are relevant to us in this season as a church community. And so this is the last week of our series that we call Things That Are Hard To Do. And the, the, the basic explanation of the series is following Jesus is challenging. Amen? Following Jesus is difficult for a lot of different reasons. And so we looked at a variety of different topics over these last six weeks. And, uh, you know, we, we looked at things like how to hold somebody accountable. That can be very hard to do. How to think biblically on subjects like sexuality or race in a particularly uh, 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 charged climate in our culture right now. And uh, last week, everyone's favorite, uh, it's hard to understand the end times. Uh, And by everyone, I mean my favorite. And so I got to preach that one. But this one was kind of an idea that was put together, myself and our staff team. Uh, The idea of it is hard to love your actual neighbor. And the word actual is in there uh, with great intentionality. And I'll explain more in a minute. But before we do anything else, I would love to just invite you to pray with me, pray for me uh, as we dive into this passage in Leviticus today. God, we bring our hearts before you. We confess that we are weak and in need of your grace and your help much, much more than we even realize. And God, we also want to confess that you are so full of mercy and love and grace so much more than we could have even imagined or dared to hope was possible. So for myself, God, I pray you help me to 
speak that which is truthful and that which is helpful. God, for all of my friends, uh, brothers and sisters, people who are gathered here today, would you give each of us soft hearts that we might seek to live out what it is that you have instructed us to do, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, as you have loved us, Lord Jesus. We pray this all in your name. Amen. All right, I want to start out with something a little bit fun. I don't usually do, I do quotations. I don't usually do quotations so long that I print them out on my own. I'm going to read to you an article that came out in the Seattle Times just about a month ago. This is from a journalist named Christine Claridge, and the article is entitled, The Seattle Freeze. Forget making friends. Half of Washington residents don't even want to talk to you. So I want to read this to you guys uh, in, in a set the climate, set the tone for us here today as we seek to love our neighbor. <clears throat> Forget about trying to make friends here. Almost half of Pacific Northwest residents don't even want to talk briefly to people they don't already know. That's among the results of a recent survey by Seattle-based Pemco Insurance that seems to give credence to the phenomenon known as the Seattle Freeze. You guys have heard of the Seattle Freeze? By the way, that is my number one choice for the new NHL hockey team uh, name that we're getting. That is the right answer. And if anyone has any other suggestions, you just don't even need to listen to them. It's the Seattle freeze. The Northwesterners' reputation for making it hard to form new friendships. About 40% of the polls, 1,200 respondents in Washington and Oregon said it's not important for them to make new friends. Quote, that's almost double the number of people on the other side who say it's important or very important to make new friends. So a two-to-one uh, ratio, an imbalance of people who don't want to make new friends. Says Derek Wing, a spokesman for Pemco Insurance, uh, which released the results of the poll last month. You've heard of FOMO, fear of missing out, right? Well, here we see a lot of JOMO, <laughs> the joy of missing out. And, and there's a bunch of introverts here today who are like, finally, somebody put words to what I've been feeling. So JOMO. People here say, there's a party I'm not going to, and I'm glad I'm not going to it. <laughs> a whopping 49% said they don't even want to interact with people they don't know. Art Converse, who's 66, grew up in Wedgwood and spent more than three decades as a Seattle firefighter, meeting people from all over the country and all walks of life. He's now a counselor for veterans. The freeze comes up all the time, he said. Quote, it's real, and people move away because of it. I was reluctant to admit it, but too many people have said, we don't like it here, we're moving away, to deny it. Converse said his daughter, who's now settled in New York City, says she can't stand the people here when she comes back for a visit. Quote, you know how it is in New York. You can go into a pub on Friday as a total stranger and be playing ball with them on Saturday. That would never happen in Seattle. Some of the younger people he's counseled have theorized that the freeze is somehow connected to technological changes, that, that life has been consumed by what is on the computer screen. While an argument could be made that technology doesn't encourage personal interaction, this region's cool reserve predates the tech boom, Converse said. What strikes Converse when he travels is how much less territorial, private, and reclusive people elsewhere are compared to those in the Seattle area. In some parts of California and Oregon, for example, he said there's an understanding that access to beaches and water views should be open to all. It's surprising that in socialist-leaning Seattle, there is a strange tendency to almost hoard the beauty. All around Seattle, there are these homes with eight-foot-tall walls, as if the owner is saying, this is my property, don't come in, you can't even look. 
It feels like there's something in the culture that promotes that kind of reclusiveness, he said. It's possible that the freeze exists in part due to the region's weather, which can somewhat train people to become hermits in the winter, Converse mused, but there may be to it more to it than rain. The phenomenon could also be tied to the Scandinavian origins of what was once the region's largest share of immigrants. It is not far-fetched to say Nordic culture has influenced Seattle culture, says Andrew Nestington, chair of the UW Department of Scandinavian Studies. I didn't even know that UW had a Department of Scandinavian Studies. How cool is that? I now have my next job if the Lord ever moves me on from pastoring. I want to be the department of any, really any like specific, like Danish studies. That sounds fine. Let's do that. Which was established by the state in 1909. It's been around for like 110 years. How do we not know this? The American social norm is to engage in small talk about weather, sports, and other non-controversial elements. While in Nordic countries, the polite thing is, quote, not to talk to people. Nesting instead. (laughs) It's considered intrusive. And the default interaction is silence. That is a sign of respect. Converse whose wife immigrated from Sweden, has observed this as as well. He said people in her native country are, quote, real cordial and welcoming to their friends, but otherwise aloof. You guys tracking? You know uh, know what we're talking about here? The in-laws will talk about the long, dark winters in a small Viking village where you couldn't call police. You didn't know if someone was walking up to annihilate you or say hello. (laughs) Are those the only two options? Okay. People had an attack dog and kept it to themselves until they got to know someone, he said. Wow. Guesses at why the Seattle freeze developed ended up being just that, said Doug Ware, a member of the Washington State Psychological Association and director of the Antioch University Community Counseling and Psychology Clinic. I bet his business card is huge. Uh, This is not an area where we have good hard research to talk about, but certainly the Seattle freeze is a great conversation starter. I I don't know if I believe that. (laughs) Hey, you know how no one likes to talk to people? Let's talk to each other about that. Seems like they might pull out their attack dog. Okay, Ware says he understands it better when he thinks of Seattle more as a big, small town than as a small city. Quote, small towns can be insular and provincial. People know each other. They have their friends and their network, and they feel complete. They might even resent outsiders. And uh, just so you know, I had someone at the 9 a.m. confess to me, yes, I do resent outsiders. So these wicked people are among us, okay? Even at our first service. None here, obviously. The 11 a.m. is much more welcoming. Plenty of long-timers here are content with their introverted tendencies and small social circles. Everybody wants to figure out how to melt the freeze, and I applaud efforts to bring people together, Ware said. One thing to keep in mind is there is a difference between being alone and feeling lonely, Not everyone wants to be melted. He described a conversation he'd had with a woman born and raised in Seattle who told him the freeze is good. Quote, we don't need those people. We have our lives. It's fine. We like it. And if they don't, that's not our problem. Yeah. But it may in fact be a problem. Loneliness and social isolation have been declared a public health risk in numerous countries and have been described in scientific journals as more dangerous than diabetes or obesity and as much of a health risk as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. I don't know how you determine that, but it's science. Not long ago, most people claimed they had five people in their lives they could count on. That number is now down to one and in some cases zero, Ware said. 
about half of Americans report deep loneliness with even higher numbers among young people, according to a 2018 nationwide survey. Kids, teens, people in their 20s, young moms at home with their children are experiencing epidemic levels of stress, anxiety, and depressive symptoms, says Tacoma-based psychologist Anna Maria Sierra. For people feeling the freeze, connecting and interacting with other people can be an important protective measure for health and well-being. And there's hope that it's possible. After all, almost half of the respondents to the PEMCO survey said they would rather spend their free time with others than alone. It's about finding your people. And that can take a while, Ware said. And you've got to go out there and do it. It's not going to happen in your house. And don't go do something once and give up and stop. If you keep going to a coffee shop or shared space where people gather, even if no one is talking at first, everyone is becoming familiar to each other. Pretty soon, people start noticing when someone's not there and and they start to care. Research shows the more you spend time with people and get to know them even a little, the more you get to like them. And for newcomers, it might be heartening to remember how much the city is still growing, where it said, I know all you long-term Seattleites are like, no! The more new people who move here, the more people there are in the same boat. You're not just going to be running into people who have been here. You're running into other people who are new and looking to connect and make friends. Things that are hard to do. Talk to other human beings in the Seattle area. The end. Let's pray. Amen. You know, when when we're talking about this idea, I will say to you, there's a couple of foundational, uh, like uh, operating assumptions I want to, I want to work from today. And the first one is this, God wants us to love our neighbors. This is perhaps the least controversial thing I have ever said in a sermon ever. God wants us to love our neighbors. Even non-Christians know that. People don't have to be followers of Jesus or have trusted in him in a saving way or be regular church attenders or, or, or regular readers of the Bible to know that Jesus talked about loving your neighbors. It's right there. It's plainly obvious in the Bible. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? But the second operational idea that we're going to need to have in place if we're going to go forward is that we don't want to love our neighbors. We don't want to love our neighbors. And it's not just Seattle. It's endemic to the human condition. I'm not going to preach on the parable of the Good Samaritan, but maybe some of you have this kind of running in the background of your mind. You'll remember that Jesus is approached by a lawyer. A lawyer comes up to Jesus and says, hey, you know, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus asks him a question in return. He says, well, what do you read? How how do you read the scriptures? And and the guy goes, well, I think the, the commandments, you can really sum them up with this idea of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's from the book of Deuteronomy. And he says, and... Love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's from our passage today in Leviticus 19. And Jesus goes, A plus. Good job, buddy. You nailed it. And then there's this really interesting line. Luke, the the author of the gospel, writes it. He says, but then the lawyer, seeking to justify himself, asked a question. You guys remember the question that the lawyer asked? Who is my neighbor? He's doing that lawyer thing. Like, well, it depends on what the word is, is, or right? Like, 
It's those sorts of things. Well, who is my neighbor? And and Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan. You remember this parable where a a Jewish man is attacked and beaten by robbers and left bleeding and left for dead. And two other Jewish men walk by. Actually, not just Jewish men, Jewish religious leaders who should have been there to love and serve the people, their own brothers. And they do nothing to help him. And finally, a Samaritan comes along who the the Jews viewed Samaritans as heretics and half-breeds. They did not like each other but it was only the Samaritan man who took pity and stopped and helped this this Jewish uh, victim of of a burglary and a robbery and an attack. And he pays for his medical expenses and he really cares for the man. And then Jesus wraps up the parable and he looks at the lawyer and he says, which one of these people acted like a neighbor to the injured man? And and the lawyer, obviously it's the Samaritan and they kind of slink away and they kind of shrink away. And, And this idea though being that like this lawyer, each of our hearts has a little lawyer inside that is looking to get us off the hook from the commandment, the plain commandment of God to love our neighbor. And if you can't say amen, you can say, ouch, that's okay. By the way, of all the sermons in this series, all the different, you know, controversial topics or whatever, this is the one that is going to sting the most. I will just tell you that right now. And the great news is I'm getting on an airplane this afternoon to go visit family in Alaska. So I'm going to say the benediction and run and I don't have to deal with any of it. No, I'm just kidding. Some of the problem here, some of the reason why we, we think we can kind of get out of this is a cultural difference. When you, when you think about the biblical culture, the, the time in which Jesus would have been saying this parable about the, the good Samaritan, you have to understand that closeness was assumed and they needed to be encouraged to move outward. You, you, you follow what I'm saying? That, that even in many parts of the world today, I, I've been to places in Mexico, been to Uganda, where it's a village, it's a small community, everybody knows everybody. There aren't uh, the same kinds of you know, com- uh, globalization and technology and connection. The people who are your neighbors are the people that you live and interact with. And Jesus was saying to, to people in, in that part of the world, in that time of the world, he was saying, hey, you need to broaden your horizons a little bit. Your neighbor is not only the person that you live nearby. Your neighbor is not only the person that you share the same, you know, ancestry or bloodline or nationality with. You need to broaden and you need to seek to be a neighbor to all who come into your path. The problem for us as we approach the scriptures is our culture is almost the exact opposite where our culture assumes distance and we need to be encouraged to actually move closer. You tracking with me on this? Like, like globalization and social media. And one of the, I mean, the, the great things about that is it has brought the whole world into our vantage point. But there are many of us that could name all of the names of entertainers, celebrities, politicians who all live 5,000 miles away from us who we will most likely never meet in person. And we don't even know the names of the neighbors who live directly next door to us. So when we're coming to these passages, we're we're coming. It's the same fundamental heart issue. We're always trying to wriggle off the hook. But Jesus is instructing us to love our neighbors. And so I want to answer some three questions. There's no big idea today. The big idea is love your neighbor. Here's the questions we're looking to answer though. Why don't we love our neighbors? Like what's going on in our hearts that keeps us from loving our neighbor? Number two, what would it look like if we actually did seek to love our neighbor? And then number three, Where am I going to find the motivation? 
Is it just going to be a passionate and inspiring sermon? Is it going to be a bunch of finger-wagging shame, you bad Christians, you don't love your neighbor? Or is there something deeper that's going on that will actually put some fuel in the tank to drive us to go do what the Lord calls us to do? If you got your Bibles, Leviticus 19. I know you were already reading there earlier this morning. Leviticus it is. Let's go. This whole section, by the way, wraps up, as you heard in the scripture reading, with the commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the the banner heading over this whole section. So first, God is speaking through Moses. When you reap the harvest of your land, these are agricultural people. This is all the way back in the time of Moses. They're going into the promised land. They're going to set up shop. They're going to be farmers. They're going to live an agricultural existence. So when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you go back after you've reaped and gather all the gleanings that fell on the ground after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Like don't get every single grape off the vine. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. So as you're gathering grapes are going to fall, you don't go back and pick them all up off the ground. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. Okay, here God is instructing his people, the people of Israel here, but by extension, all of us who are grafted into the family of Abraham, there's, there's a principle here I see that is one of margin. That the people are instructed to leave margin. Hey, don't squeeze every ounce of grain, every single grape out of your field that you possibly could. You need to leave some margin. And you got to think that's about, that's about money. That's economics. This is how the people live and survive. If they want to eat, they will eat the grain that they harvest. If they want to have wine to drink, they will drink wine that is made from the grapes that they harvest. But not only does God instruct them not to glean all the way to the edges, don't squeeze every single penny out of your work that you possibly can. He says, and don't go back and spend all of the time that it would take to pick up every single uh, grape or kernel of wheat that fell to the ground. Think about how long that would take. Going back through your hand, hands and knees, you're, you're going through with, with a mindset of, I need every single ounce of provision that I could possibly get. God says, I want you to leave margin so that you can love your neighbor, here specifically, the poor and the sojourner. One of the reasons why we don't love our neighbors well is we leave no margin. And for some, it's economic driven. It's a fear of what if I don't have enough? So I'm going to work harder, stay at the office longer, take on more side projects. And you're just never present in the place where you actually live because you're off somewhere else working to get every kernel of grain and every grape that you could possibly get out of your job. For others... It's more of a fear. It's the time thing. We don't leave enough margin in our time. We're going back around picking up every single grape and we're missing out on the opportunity to love our neighbors. For us, our time gets eaten up with other things, maybe besides work. How many of you know that time can get eaten up with recreation and leisure activities? Uh, Kids, soccer, for crying out loud. Like, I'm fine with soccer. I'm not really fine with soccer, but I'm fine. I have to say I'm fine with soccer because other people like soccer. There's nothing sinful about soccer, but my goodness. Then you add in gymnastics, then you add in ballet, and then you add in the, the school events that they have. And like every single night, we're doing something where we're driving in the car and, and just being in the car, driving constantly. I'm not interacting with my neighbors. How many of you know that our margin can go away real quick? 
I love you. I'm going to say all these hard words and I, I mean them in love, but we don't love our neighbor because we don't leave any margin. I think underneath that is a fear, a fear that God won't be the provider that he promises to be for us. Maybe sometimes it's a fear, like on behalf of our kids, oh, maybe my kids are going to miss out on something, you know, the opportunity to do this, that, or the other thing. I want to challenge that fear. Maybe there's other things going on there. But God wants us to leave margin. And I'll even just specifically mention here the idea of people who are poor or the sojourner, you know, people who have traveled from other parts of the world seeking for help and support, seeking a new life. Um, Some of you in this room, God bless you, you are passionate about issues of poverty. You are passionate about issues of immigration. And while we can all sit on social media and read about the immigration crisis at the border and what's going on in the world and who's doing what and the other thing, there are immigrants in your actual neighborhood who need a neighbor. We always hear this from schools, public schools in particular, because they're the ones that have the doors open and said anybody can come. And they're looking for people to tutor in English and to train and to make connections. Don't spend so much time out there that you miss the opportunities that God has provided right in your zip code. I'm going to keep this kind of impulse, this out there to in here trajectory throughout as we go, okay? I'm going to keep coming back to that. Not everything out there, here. Keep going. Verse 11, you shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. This is much closer to what is meant in the, in the Ten Commandments when God says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's not necessarily talking about don't say, oh my God. That might be included in there. It might be irreverent, but this is what's really at the heart of it. Don't misre- misrepresent me. Don't swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Okay, one of the reasons why we don't love our neighbors is because we live under false pretenses. Uh, You shall not steal. Uh, Maybe you're sitting there thinking like, okay, yeah, great. I didn't steal from my neighbor. I actually realized yesterday when Sam came over to help me do something that I have a ladder that I borrowed from my neighbor like nine months ago that I need to return. So I accidentally stole a ladder from my neighbor. I need to be held accountable. Can you hold me accountable to get it back to them? Okay, come on. But... Maybe you say, okay, I haven't stolen from my neighbor. I haven't done that horrible thing like Pastor Aaron's done. How many of you are concerned about what the neighbors might think? Your car, your lawn, uh, the windows are open, somebody's having a fight. Quiet, the neighbors will hear. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you just, you do. Yes, you do, Joe. <laughs> What about the whole idea of, especially in the suburbs where, where many, most of us live, the idea of keeping up with the Joneses. Keeping up with the Joneses is this idea of like, well, I, if they get this, I have to get that. And we have to all, you know, property values and we have to compete and make sure all this sort of stuff. And, and this is honestly, this is one of the things that drives people deep into debt is keeping up with the Joneses. Keeping up with the Joneses is bearing false witness. Living your life in a way where you deal falsely with your neighbor We don't love our neighbor because we're putting up a front. We're putting up a pretense. We want things to appear a certain way. And underneath this is an issue of identity. 
Who or what defines me? Am I defined by the image that I build up of myself? Am I defined by the image that my neighbors think of me? Am I defined by the presentation that I put forth? Or am I defined by the God who gave his very son to rescue and purchase and redeem me? Am I defined by what God says about me? That I'm an image bearer, that I'm holy, that I'm set apart, that I'm dearly loved. Am I defined by what I can do for myself or am I defined by what God can do for me? Am I defined, am I more concerned with my reputation or am I more concerned with God's reputation? One of the reasons that we do not love our neighbor is we've built up an untruthful identity. Verse 13, we're just getting started. Let's keep going. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. This is the idea of you have hired somebody. They're in a vulnerable position. They need the, they need the work. They need the job. You hire them. They do the work. And then you say, oh, oh come back tomorrow. I'll pay, you, I'll pay you tomorrow. God is saying, no, you need to just Pay them the money. Verse 14. You shall not curse the deaf. Uh, Someone who is deaf, not trying to be cute here, you can vent your frustration and utter a curse on them because they're not going to hear it. You can get away with harming someone spiritually just because you think they aren't going to be able to hear it or do anything about it. You shall not put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Friends, is, is, is the God of the Bible concerned with justice? This is not a trick question. It's literally on the screen. Is the God of the Bible concerned with justice in the society? And I hate, I, I, I am so frustrated that the term social justice has become the political landmine that it has become. And I'm not using the phrase social justice because it will trip too many of you up. But God cares that there is justice in the society. Can I say it that way? God cares that we treat each other equitably, that we are concerned that people are not oppressed or put down or taken advantage of. Sometimes I volunteer at my children's school. It's something that you see in the elementary school is kids will use whatever thing that they can get to put others down and elevate themselves. You know what I'm talking about. Children, I love you. Close your ears. I'm not trying to pick on you, okay? But kids will, they'll see something strange. They'll see something odd. You know, maybe it's, you know, somebody's hair is, you know, weird or maybe they're too short or whatever it is. And there's something about the fallen human condition where we like to prop ourselves up by putting someone else down. Now, I will contend that as we grow and as we age, the same fundamental heart issues are going on. We just get a little bit more sophisticated in the methods. So maybe you don't go to your workplace, or you go out in the neighborhood and you, that, blah, 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 and you put them down. But sometimes we do, actually. Sometimes we do. We make comments. We slander people. Oh, the neighbor's two houses down. Do you see? And, and it makes us feel good. It's pride. 
We're using someone else's downtroddenness to prop ourselves up. Now, this goes a couple of different directions. Pride's a tricky thing. Because we could say, you know, injustice. We could say something like the, the crooked, you know, landlord who, you know, preys upon people and takes advantage of the, the poor or the single mom and they, they squeeze every single penny they can. That is wicked and evil in the sight of the Lord. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? Okay, but here, look at what pride does. Look at how we can use people to get a leg up even as we try to claim that we're not using them. Did you notice in verse 15, it says, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. In the Hebrew, the language is more similar. It says, you shall not lift up your face to the poor or lift up your face to the great. The idea is we are not to be uh, partial to one or the other. Now, you all can probably identify with the impulse to want to identify, to, 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 uh, to hitch your wagon to someone who is great. You ever, you, ever, uh, um, you ever gotten an invite for dinner at somebody's house and you get to their house like, ooh, they're rich. I want to hang out with them. Be honest. This is church for crying out loud. You've done that. You ever, you ever met a celebrity and then you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a selfie with this person. And then like, you just cannot wait to share it on Instagram. Or maybe you're, maybe you're more of an introvert. And you're like, oh, I didn't really like go or whatever, but you get back home or you go to your office. You get to your work, like, oh, hey, I, I met Liam Neeson. <laughs> He didn't even kill me or anything. It was awesome, right? I met, I met, uh, this was years ago. I met Miley Cyrus back when it was cool. And then after it was cool, I'm like, I need to take those pictures off of my Instagram. (laughs) We want to elevate ourselves. We want to get, you know, I'm out of my, my lowly status and my lowly position. I want to be lifted up. I want to be raised up. And so one of the ways we do it is we, we either put other people down, the hired worker, the deaf, the poor, or we try to, to hitch our wagon to someone who's great. We're going to lift my face and be partial to someone who is great and they're going to help lift me up. But did you know there's even one more level of sickness here in these verses? You shall not be partial to the poor. Right now, in our cultural climate, there is a large contingent of people that will pat you on the back and give you lots of accolades and praise if you are the type of person who says that you care for the poor. And there are people who post a lot of things on social media about helping the poor and helping the immigrants and about doing this, that, or the other thing who never have lifted a finger or given a dime to actually help someone else in their life, but they get their social status elevated by posting things on social media that get them pats on the back by being partial to the poor. You're still using the poor. You're not squeezing money out of them, but you're squeezing social clout out of them. And it is wicked in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. The idea there being we need to communicate honestly, not falsely. We need to be truthful to one another because I don't want to stumble into the various sins that are being outlined here. You shall not take vengeance or, so don't just not take vengeance, don't even bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. How many, how many of you know that it is, it's theoretically possible to do all of the right things externally and still have your heart be in a really bad place? We could leave margin. We could not put others down and seek to lift ourselves up. We could, we could you know, be truthful with our neighbors and be honest and completely miss the heart of what God's getting at. Now look at this passage. It's weighty, is it not? We don't love our neighbor because our hearts are cold. So what is it that is going to light my heart on fire to want to do what God is commanding me to do? One of the foundational beliefs that I have just as a Christian, but also as a pastor, is that if God commands us to do something, he will himself supply what we need to obey his command. Can I get an amen from anybody on that one? That that is so important. God never commands us to do something without providing us the grace to do it. Grace isn't just what forgives our sins. It's what's empowering us to live a life that is honoring to God. So how are we going to get some fuel in our tank to do this? I think that there's a clue in the phrase that was repeated over and over and over again, almost as a section marker and in our passage. And it's the words, I am the Lord. You shall do these things because I am the Lord. Who is this passage about? Us or God? Who is the one ultimately who has his reputation on the line in these commandments? Is it about us or is it about him? See, God is commanding his people, his chosen people, the nation of Israel, to act and to live in the society in a certain way because God is concerned with his reputation being made known to all the nations of the earth. Amen? God is saying to live this sort of way, not just because this would be a good idea for you to do. This is about God making his goodness known to the world. I am the Lord. I am a certain way. I have a certain character. This is about me and my reputation going out before all people. And friends, while the bad news is that Israel, as well as us, we have all failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. There is one who has loved his neighbor perfectly. Friends, his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true Israel who fulfills the law to love his neighbor the way that, get this, the way that God loves himself. Do you know that one of the reasons why the nature and the doctrine of the Trinity is so important to Orthodox Christianity is because if, if, if God is not Trinity, there is no eternally existent community of love to base all of this on. If God is not truly loving, then God is needing of something and we have to get our stuff together. We have to live a certain way because God is needy. But friends, that's not who our God is. Our God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Our God is pure love. And in pure love, God sent his son Jesus to do what sinful humanity has failed to do. How good is that? 
And even think about this. Think about the gospel through the lens of neighboring. And think about first, like just the incarnation. John chapter one, if you remember in our John series, like 32 years ago when we started it, it says in, in John 1.14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, dwelled among us. Uh, I, I really like in the message paraphrase where Eugene Peterson says, the word took on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I love that. I wish I'd thought of that. That's brilliant. That Jesus, that the, the gospel message starts with Emmanuel, God with us. That God is not content to let there be a relational separation. So he buys the house next door to us and he moves on into the neighborhood. Jesus comes not just with margin. The people were commanded to have margin. Jesus comes with more than margin. You know what Jesus comes with? Abundance. In John 1.16, it says that we have all received from Jesus grace upon grace. Now, mathematically, I don't know how much more grace that is, but it's more than just grace. It's like grace upon grace upon grace. It's like when you go to the ice cream store and you ask for a single scoop and they do the scoop and you're like, okay, that's, and then like they put more on. You're like, yes, this is so good. This is more than I expected. This is better than I was bargaining for. Jesus comes with, with grace upon grace. And Jesus shows off like when he feeds the 5,000. He doesn't just have enough food for everybody. He says there's 12 basketfuls left over. Each disciple had to carry one basketful of food back to their, wherever they were staying. And when Jesus goes to the wedding at Cana and he turns the water into wine, it's not just, well, it's wine, it'll do. It's not like a box or something. It's like the best possible wine, they said. First John says, how great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. Friends, our Savior doesn't just leave some margin to share with the poor. He doesn't just say, you can glean from the edges of the field. He says, here's the whole field. And Jesus truly represents the Father. Where we have all been more concerned with our reputation than God's, Jesus perfectly represents the Father. The famous verse in John 14 where he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The very next verse, Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus, the true Israel, the true humanity, the one who has perfectly represented the Father. Jesus never presented any falsehood to his neighbor. Jesus never tried to keep up with the Joneses. Jesus has always been the perfect image of our Heavenly Father. And Jesus doesn't take advantage of people. He doesn't take advantage of the lowly. Jesus humbles himself and makes himself low to identify with us. Paul in Philippians 2 writes that Jesus took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and he humbled himself and he, he humbled himself not just to death but to specifically death on a cross. That Jesus, the, the impulse, the message that Jesus comes with is, is not to say, well, if you can somehow get yourself up here to my level, I'll identify with you. Jesus says, I'm gonna go to the lowest of the low and if you wanna hang out with me, that's where I'll be. You want to hang out with Jesus? You got to go low. You want a relationship with God? You got to go low. 
That's why Christians make such a big deal about repentance because in the act of repentance, we are shedding ourselves of the ridiculous burden of trying to somehow get up to God when God says, I'd hang out with the contrite and the lowly in spirit. You want to get to God? Let's go, let's go lower. More poverty, more broke, more repentant, more I am a complete idiot. And thank God that Jesus came to redeem complete idiots like me. But then he says in Philippians, he says, now, because Jesus even died on the cross and then, and then rose again, and then God has exalted him. And it, he's now exalted to the highest possible place. At the name of Jesus, Paul says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. That's way better than meeting a celebrity. Because that says that Jesus has all of the clout, all of the importance, all of the richness, all of the fame in the entire world. And if we are to believe the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter two, if we're united with Christ, then we are raised up into heavenly places with Jesus. So he humbles himself. We humble ourselves. Boom, we're picked up into the highest possible place we could go. Friends, look at that list and tell me that won't put a little bit of fuel in your tank to love your neighbor. That's way better than, well, here are, you know, a bunch of shaming things that you got to go do or come on guys, we could change the world or here's 10 principles for how to reach your neighbor for Jesus. This is Jesus, our neighbor, moved into our neighborhood and loved us to the point of his own death so that we could enjoy the riches of heaven for all of eternity. How awesome is that? That's good stuff. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Now, I do have 10 practical ideas I'd like to share with you. In closing, because some of you are like, Pastor Aaron, that's great. I'm really thankful that Jesus loves me. Have you met my neighbors? They're a complete train wreck. Okay, let's get practical for just a minute. And then we're going to celebrate the Lord's table and worship. And and we're going to be fueled by his grace to go seek some ways to love him. So this is not comprehensive. This is just some ideas to share with you. Some of these will land for some of you. These are not like commandments. They're just some ideas to try. Number one, if, if this is something that you're passionate about and feeling like you really need to grow in, I will recommend a book to you called The Art of Neighboring. It's by two guys. I believe one of them at least is out of Colorado and they share their experience about really leading their church into a season of, of really trying to be actual neighbors. We as a staff, we read this earlier uh, in the spring. It's very helpful. Lots of good practical ideas. This would be a good starting point. A few of the other ideas I'm going to share in this list will come from this book. Number two is do a prayer walk in your neighborhood. And this is all about getting your heart in the right place first before you try to do some practical things. And if you don't know what a prayer walk is, um, you walk and you pray. And you try to kind of keep your eyes open. Maybe in scanning, you look into houses. Man, I don't, I don't really know who the people are there. Do they know Jesus? Do they love Jesus? Oh man, I've heard some, mm, mm, those people are not, mm. okay. So uh, like you just start praying and, and Lord, would you, would you break my heart? Would you help me to want to leave margin for these people? Would you help me to not try to puff myself up to look good in front of these people? Help me to genuinely care for them. Number three, draw a neighborhood block map with names. This is actually one of the ideas from the book. You can go to their website. You can download a kind of a generic, like, you know, PDF of kind of your stereotypical suburban neighborhood. Maybe get on Google Maps and kind of look at your neighborhood, print something out and see how many names you can write down and pray for them and, and, and establish, you know, moving from stranger to acquaintance to relationship to maybe, who knows, even friend. Number four, build a neighborhood contact list to share 
We need this. We need to be able to contact our neighbors, to be able to help each other out, to be able to, 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 to love each other, whether or not even they're necessarily a Christian, just to be a good neighbor, because whether or not they're a Christian, they're still an image bearer of God. We had a funny moment a few months ago. My wife and I, were, we were flying out of SeaTac to go to a church conference. And as we like got to our gate and we sat down, our across the street neighbors were sitting down across from us in the, in the area. And we're like, oh, hey, what's going on? And I was like, well, so you're traveling and we're traveling. Who's watching our houses while we're gone? Like, are they going to rob our whole neighborhood? And sure hope that Sandy's keeping his eyes open for us or whatever. Build a neighborhood contact list to share. Say, hey, let's look out for each other. Number five, host a neighborhood block party. Now this just really divided the group, okay? If you're an introvert, you don't really make friends with extroverts. You just get adopted by them, okay? So find an extrovert who wants to grab you and bring you along to do a neighborhood block party. Just to say, hey, let's hang out. Let's have a barbecue or whatever we're going to cook, you know? <laughs> do something less controversial like sushi or whatever, but serve good food. And by the way, this works for apartment complexes too. This isn't just for, you know, suburban neighborhoods. This works if you live in an apartment or, you know, a, a, a multi uh, dwelling unit sort of place, but host a block party and just say, hey, we're going to hang out. We're going to get together. Maybe even number six, maybe even utilize holidays and special events. Maybe you don't live anywhere near uh, downtown Edmonds and and driving all the way over into the Edmonds Bowl to participate in the 4th of July thing. Like that's cool, but maybe you want to do something in your own neighborhood to get to know your neighbors. That's awesome. The Super Bowl at Christmas time, take a Christmas card and a plate of cookies to all your neighbors and just say, hey, you know, we love you. And you know, like in October, when you dress your children up for Reformation Day, you know, take your little Martin Luther's to nail the 95 Thesis to all your neighbor's doors or whatever you do, right? Take advantage of culturally normal opportunities to meet and engage with your neighbors. Number seven, volunteer at your local school, YMCA, or other gathering places, particularly if you are someone who who claims to care about the poor. One of the things that happens when money enters into the picture is you have more choices. And so people will drive, whether it's to private schools or to other recreational activities, but people who are uh, more impoverished don't have those type of opportunities. So they go to the local public institutions that are in the neighborhoods where you live. So if you, if you care about the poor, volunteer at your school, rec center, boys and girls club, get involved in those local gathering places. That is where people are, who are immigrating to the United States are gathering. That is where people who are less financially advantaged are. Go serve them. Number eight, frequent the businesses in your immediate vicinity. And learn how to ask questions. Hey, how'd you start the business? What's going on? What, you know, how, how'd this come about? Get to know people. Even talk about it in that the Seattle Times article that the more you go to a regular place, you start to, you start to kind of develop some relationship with people. Number nine, get involved in local politics. Whew. Okay. Again, I'm just trying to, to, to be consistent with the impulse of, of out there to in here. Okay. We live in a nation of roughly 300 million people. I think you should vote. Your vote's important. I'm I'm obliged to say that as an American. But your vote is only one out of 300 million votes in all these national issues. Yet in the community where you live, there are school boards, there are PTAs, there are city council meetings, there are uh, you know, county meetings. You can have a real opportunity to find out what the needs of your community are and have a real impact and a real voice in your community if you get off of the blogosphere and all of the na- nationwide political heat that's going on and think about what's going on in your own backyard. And then number 10, avoid the shallow church invite only approach. Please don't go love your neighbor 
just so that you can slip them a Sound City Bible Church invite card. Love your neighbor because God loves them. Love your neighbor because they are created in his image and likeness. Love your neighbor not to like trickingly get them to come to church or get them saved. Obviously, if you love Jesus and they don't know Jesus, you're going to want to share Jesus. That's just a given. But don't do the, the love your neighbor thing just so you can get them to come to church. Or just, you're just sitting there waiting to, ah, Jesus! Like, you're just, <laughs> just love them. Uh, can y'all tell I'm like headed out on vacation later today? <laughs> love them because they're an image bearer of God and because God loves them. And because whether or not they come to church or even if they don't accept Jesus, they're still a human being with dignity, value, and worth. So love them. And yes, share the gospel with them. But don't do it in a shallow way. Don't do it in a manipulative way. Seek to know and love that person. I'm going to invite the band to come. I'm going to invite Pastor Kyle to come do something responsible pastorally and lead us in communion. Our younger students class is going to join us here in a minute. But before we do that, I wonder if you'd pray this corporate prayer out loud with me. Um, I came across this in, a, in, a, in a, a book of prepared liturgies and I'll invite you to pray this out loud with me as we conclude our time together, if you would. Almighty God, we confess how hard it is to be your people. You have called us to be the church, to continue the mission of Jesus Christ to our lonely and confused world. Yet we acknowledge we are more apathetic than active, more isolated than involved, more calloused than compassionate, more obstinate than obedient, more legalistic than loving. Gracious Lord, have mercy upon us and forgive our sins. Remove the obstacles preventing us from being your representatives to a broken world. Awaken our hearts to the promised gift of your indwelling spirit. This we pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. Lord, as we come to the table, may that be true. Would you set our hearts on fire with the truth of the gospel that we might seek to love our neighbors the way that you, God, have loved us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, as I was thinking about this, knowing that uh, Pastor Aaron was me preaching about loving your actual neighbor, I was reminded uh, several months ago, back in the winter, my neighbor adjacent to my house, his fence got graffitied. He got tagged and uh, called, the, called and reported to the cops because I saw that morning before, I think before he did. Uh, anyway, he and I ran into each other and started talking about it. And I just said, hey, man, I uh, would love to help you paint it whenever you, you know, go to paint the, the fence back. And he said, yeah, we'll wait, till, we'll wait till it warms up a little bit so it'll dry. Uh, so not too long after that, while it's still cold out, I noticed I was leaving, uh, leaving for work early that morning. I noticed the fence was painted. I was like, oh, darn it. I missed the opportunity to help him. And several weeks went by, and uh, he, he said to me, he said, hey, thanks for painting my fence. I was like, man, I wish I could boast right now and take credit for that, but I couldn't. I was actually really, I was kind of embarrassed because I was like, what a cool opportunity. I could have taken that uh, advantage of that and loved him in that way and served him in that way, but uh, somebody else did it. We still don't know who did it, uh, which is really cool. Somebody else in our neighborhood, you know, obviously is trying to show Christ's love, but he said to me, he said, oh, my wife and I assumed it was you. You're the only person we would have thought would have done something like that. 
uh, which I thought that was really cool, but it also was convicting to me. And it just reminded me, like, man, look at the opportunities that we have. That was a perfect opportunity that I could have served him and loved him. And I can still take those opportunities, but I just I, I want to challenge us, myself included, to really be reflecting this morning. As we come to the Lord's table, what are the areas that he's calling each of us to really love people, to reach out and love those people who are right there next to us so we have the opportunity to serve and to love and to show Christ to? Jesus says in John 13 that people will know that we are, follow, that we are his followers by our love. In that situation, I mean, the cool thing is he thought I did it, so I had maybe done something to, to represent Christ to him. Um, but we have the opportunity to, to demonstrate Jesus' love to those around us. You can take out your elements. If you didn't receive them, they're out at the, at the entrances uh, to the theater. You can grab them there. Um, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and then we will partake of communion together. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We take communion as followers of Jesus to reflect, to remember what Christ has done, that he gave himself for us, for our sins. He gave his life. He died in our place for our sins. Continues on, Wherever therefore, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Again, I encourage us to each take a moment. I'll pray, and then take a moment to reflect and ask the Lord, what are the areas in my life that I need to repent? Where do I need to pursue loving others and sacrificing for others? I'll pray, and then in a moment, uh, you can take the, the, the cup and the bread, and then join us as we stand and sing and celebrate. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, for your model that you've given to us, how to live, how to love people. Uh, you didn't call us to do something that you haven't already done yourself. You gave everything for us. And so this morning, as we uh, meet with you at the table, would you show us in our hearts how we are to live our lives, how you're calling us as individuals to, to just do this simple thing, to love those who you've placed right next to us in our lives, that we can model your love and your sacrifice and be an example, be a light in this dark world. God, Show us where we need to repent and ask for forgiveness and, um, and to trust you more in greater ways, Lord. Help us in this way, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.